live from Israel, we have Mr. G, who's with the Israeli Special Forces, joining us, and Fritz, who's a journalist and tech entrepreneur. I want to welcome you both on the broadcast. Let me start with you, Mr. G, because you've been on the ground, you're with the Special Forces. Help us uh, understand the propaganda campaign that has resulted um, since what happened on October 7th, and how do we separate truth from fake news? Well, you, there is so much evidence today um, as to what happened on October 7th and October 8th. You know, I, I live in New York in the last few years, um, and I got on the first plane Saturday afternoon from, from JFK to Tel Aviv. I got here uh, Sunday morning, uh, rented a car at the airport, drove to my unit roughly a mile from Gaza. Uh, so I still had a chance to see, you know, the mutilated bodies, uh, the beheaded um, bodies, um, what they did to homes and to entire families. Um, etc. Uh, I think the evidence is out there. You know, there there is obviously a numerical problem uh, for every kind of person standing with Israel. Um, there are hundred x more uh, in the Muslim world that are essentially flooding social media and the internet with uh, with essentially fake news, right? As to what happened and what Hamas motives are. Uh, so really, just having more people out there speak. Uh, you know, I'm I'm here with the troops, roughly a mile from Gaza. And I can tell you that a lot of them, for them, it's not just about Israel or the Jewish people. Um, it really feels like we're fighting for a broader fight uh, for kind of Judeo-Christian values. So, so Dr. G, you're inside, you and Fritz, and you're on the ground. Tell us what's being, not being reported. So I, I think it's not really being reported. Oh, Go ahead, Dr. G. Go ahead. I think one thing that is underestimated by current um, kind of Western media is the fact that since they, um, the people in Gaza elected Hamas, by the way, the next day Hamas took all opposition leaders and either hanged them or threw them from roofs. That's well documented. So since then, we're talking 17 years, essentially every nickel, every dime, every dollar that the world uh, sent there was used to build a terrorist apparatus that is quite sophisticated, that is funded by countries outside of, uh, of Gaza, outside of Palestinian Authority. And they essentially build, you know, they always blame Israel that they build a, a jail. We didn't build a jail, they build a military apparatus and we need to protect ourselves from it. So the, the amount of investment in infrastructure and in technologies and rockets and ammunition that the Hamas people invested through funds from the kind of other countries around the world, I think it's still underestimated by, by Western media. Um, Fritz, help us understand the, the complication of the hostage situation. 31 Americans, scores of Israeli Jews, and other, from other countries. Talk about the dynamics and the movement by the Israelis into Gaza now. So, as uh, Mr. G mentioned, so I guess he's, he's right by the Gaza border. It's been for the past few weeks since the outbreak of the war, um, the troops have been gearing up for an invasion. Something that as complicated that is, as you mentioned, the hostage situation. It's, it's, it's not a, um, you know, a typical situation where say there's no hostages and we could just go right in and, you know, take, take care of war, uh, whatever the war business may be. Um, 
you know, there there are innocent lives there. 224 right now. Four have been released to American citizens, um, to elderly Australians. But there are um, 224 that are still remaining in there, and their lives are are valuable. And I, I think that's something to to point out and to to really emphasize is the value that um, Israelis, the Jewish people, place on life, putting life first more than anything. That we're willing to put on hold what we could say is revenge or the, the rightful war that we have to take the defense that we have against our land because we're still so concerned about the lives of our people and we're willing to put everything out and test all options before we really go out to war because we want to make sure that our innocent civilians they are able to come home to their families you, you know um mr g I, I find it fascinating you got on an airplane and flew to your beloved israel to fight I've read so many other stories about young men like you that also went, and I, I'm reading about their deaths and the sacrifice that they made. Just how, 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 how deadly is the situation there? I know Jerusalem is quite different because Jerusalem has 50% Arabs, and so and a lot of the sacred places for Muslims are right in Jerusalem. But the fact that 99% of Jews live in Tel Aviv, it is a target for Hamas because they believe in Hezbollah that if they do target Tel Aviv, they're going to end up t killing Israelis and Jews. Exactly. So I would say two, two, two things um, on that. One is that the feeling in Israel among, among the troops, but also the civilians, um, is that we're fighting for our existence. Not in the sense that Israel won't be around in a few years, it will, but we're fighting for our ability to live here for decades to come so that our neighbors and um, the millions around us that want to see us get out of here and essentially annihilate us, right, understand that we're not going anywhere. So the the genuine feeling from, from troops and people that got on planes from all over the world, and it's not just me, it's many people and the heroes, the 19-year-old girls serving in the military, the elderly that are supporting uh, the troops in different ways uh, on the civilian front, the feeling is that we're fighting for our existence that it will be a long war. And as I mentioned earlier, the second point, the feeling is that we're not just fighting for Israel or the Jewish people, that we're fighting for uh, common values, that the West, that liberal democracies globally um, are fighting for, and that we're just like another front line. There are other front lines. And, you know, the, the leaders that came from around the world in the last two weeks are actually also saying that. You're, we know you're also fighting for us. Fritz, uh, how important was it for our president to come to Israel and his secretary of state, and how important is America's support of Netanyahu and his government as they fight for their existence? So I think that support's always beneficial. I, I, you know, I, I don't think in, a, in wartime we want enemies. We have enough, we have enough enemies. Um, I will tell you from the perspective that I've been hearing in the circles I am um, is there actually is some level of animosity towards President Biden right now and uh, Secretary of State Blinken. Um, they came in um, and they, they said some really nice things. I think there's no doubt that the words were very strong. They were very powerful. They're very nice. But the action that um, Israelis have felt has been kind of to the counter of that. Um, and you see it in what 
is bringing forward is that, that what Biden, what the, uh, John Kirby, the national security uh, spokesperson has said is it's more requests, but how Israelis have been taking is more pressure, pressure to limit combat operations, pressure to limit our operational um, capabilities and activity. And, you know, it was actually very unprecedented that it, they say it was the first time ever that um, uh, President Biden and Secretary Blinken, they both sat in on the war cabinet meeting with the Israeli government. And that's something that never happened before. And the question is, I guess, why did that, why did that happen? Um, was that the right thing to happen? But you're seeing it from across the, the board, um, experts, commentators from the right and from the left questioning, uh, is the actions by the U.S. government, everyone's saying the words are nice, but are the actions, are they, are they really benefiting Israel right now at the current state in the war? Um, Mr. G, do you think that our government wants there to be a ceasefire and they're trying to play both sides, appease the Palestinian uh, constituency here in the United States as well as Israel? And how does that, how does that a, a, a non-win for anybody? Yeah, I, I think a few things are true. I think one is that uh, your government is over time, and it, I think it started in the last week, and I think it will get worse, will we'll bail in, in, in face of pressure from uh, the Muslim world and adversarial countries. Um, and I think even the troops here, you know, even the common soldier will say, look, we have we have this window of legitimacy and support because after that, the world will turn up on us. Um, that will be a lose-lose, right? Because once you show uh, Hamas um, and by proxy Iran and Hezbollah, um, and Iran, as we know, is like the head of the octopus, right? They're supporting essentially all terror groups in the Middle East that are actively uh, massacring civilians in Yemen, in Syria, in Lebanon, in Gaza, in the West Bank, um, in parts of North Africa, etc. If we show them that even after something like this, we as Israel, we as the Jewish people, we as democracies, we as the Western world are not willing to go in and do the job. I think it will have long-term effects on the ability of our democracies, our free societies to, to face this uh, danger. It is obvious in the 45 seconds that we have left, Mr. G, that you've made a decision. This is something that you're willing to die for. Yeah, yeah. and. Um, my family knows it, my friends know it, and it is, it is important to say that currently there are hundreds of thousands of Israelis that have normal lives, they have tech businesses, they write in newspapers, they own a coffee shop, and on the day it happened, they all showed up. So attendance to reserve duty in Israel, it's over 150%, right? So people that didn't do reserve duty for a while, they're not supposed to do it legally, are just showing up. listening to this week's episode.